Welcome to the Oxford University Undergraduate Law Journal Podcast, where we discuss the law and its relationships with our society and its implications on our everyday lives. I'm Chen. I'm Dorothea. And we are your podcast editors. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And thanks so much for tuning in to this new episode of the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Professor Matthias Schmerkel is the chair of the Institute for Legal History and of the Institute for Public Notary Law at the University of Bonn. He has published notable works, both in Germany and internationally. This includes books on the legal history of canon law, the legal history of the Protestant Reformation, and a historical commentary on the German civil code. Today, we are actually recording at the Institute for Legal History Offices. I have been working here this year as a translation assistant as part of my year abroad. Professor Schmerkel, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to see you and thank you again for being our guest. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just jump into the questions. Fine, very fine. I'm very happy with it. Great. You specialise in canon law. This is an area of law which many English law students may not have come across. Perhaps you could please start by explaining to us what this area of law involves. Well, some decades ago, it was a very common topic. Almost all members of my faculty dealt with it um, in the last years so for some time, I've been the last in Germany to deal with canon law, and so I felt the necessity to, uh, to, to pass the frame on uh, to, to the next generation. Right. Uh, it is uh, about the law of the medieval churches, reaching back to the church fathers, and including also the law of the Eastern tradition. Traditionally, the most uh, important uh, collection of texts, the Corpus Juris Canonici, um, consists of the Decretum Graciani, which is a text of the time before 1140, compiling the tradition of the Church of the First Millennium, and then a collection of decretals, decretals being paper letters with uh, legal contents, and um, they really 
develop the law of the church in a tremendous way between 1150 and 1250. Almost all topics of law are considerably changed or uh, shaped in a new way which lead the way uh, to our modern period. And this is why the law of the church is so influential for the European uh, policy, legal development and so much more. Um, and you find the first ideas of administrative law, of criminal law and contractual uh, obligations in a new way. So this is really something, a huge field where you can discover lots of things. Um, it ends in some part of um, Europe with the Protestant Reformation, although in the Protestant tradition, canon law still has a subsidiary meaning so that you can use it, uh, you can cite it. It's uh, a sort of um, law which in case of necessity can be used. In the Catholic uh, tradition, uh, however, um, the codifications of the 20th century of the Roman Church, notably of 1917, and um, in 1982. Uh, they changed uh, the law. In 1970, they rather introduced a new system, not changing the law in its contents, whereas under John Paul II, it has been changed also to some extent in the contents. So until 82, you could say the medieval law of the church remained uh, in vigor in the uh, in the Catholic Church, um, and um, over the date of eighty two, of course, many influences um, persisted. Many major um, traits uh, consisted uh, in the as an essence of the canon law. For this reason, many people also speak of canon law, indicating not the history of the ecclesiastical law of the Roman Church, but they use it for the law of our time, because it is still ordered not by paragraphs or articles, but by canons. So there is a slight confusion, because some use it for the history, and some use it also for the contemporary law. In German, we rather speak of Kirchenrecht, speaking of the contemporary law, and canon law is moreover rather used for the history. So the law of the church, Kirchenrecht, yeah. is distinct in how the terms are used from canon law. That's really interesting. And I think what you've explained definitely has been reflected in some of we've studied as well. I remember uh, we discussed the Christian influence on Justinian's institutes when we studied Roman law and obviously Roman private law has influence on both current continental and uh, common law systems so that's super interesting to know. I know that you are also head of the law of public notary at the University of Bonn. I understand that notarizing plays quite a large role in German property law. 
especially in land conveyance and uh, for example the law of um, gifting the Schenkungsvertrag. It's interesting because uh, I guess uh, land conveyance and gifting would both be uh, regulated by the English deed in common law but the public notary is quite distinct from a deed. Could you explain to us perhaps what public notary is? <laughs> Well, it's a wonderful example to show the influence of the Roman Church as well, because they took over some elements of the Roman antiquity, um, the tradition of scribes, which were called tabellones, um, and they transferred this to a modern use, which uh, was created in the 11th, 12th century, and took uh, over the name of the notary notaria, so public notaries. Uh, this is um, something which is connected with the tradition of Roman law. These are scribes which were ready to act uh, for um, simple people sitting on the marketplaces or uh, dealing with princes being employed in the courts. And here in this case the Roman Church used them to define a common, uh, common frame for dressing up documents. And this combined not only some legal rules, how documents should look like, but also the necessity to have some specialist uh, first for setting them up, and then also some other ex experts for being able to criticize uh, forgeries. And this was the function of the church. So they set up this new function of notaries, specialists for setting up documents, but they were also able to criticize the documents which were used in the practice and in uh, discovering them, for example, as forgeries. And in order to make the system work, they had to use some people trained in law, perhaps not with a university uh, formation, but at least they had to have some basic knowledge of law. Um, there were some books explaining how to set up, um, for example, donations, uh, um, conveyance and something like that. Um, and this was meant as um, a clear set, set of rules for the public notaries how to act and what kind of ways they should set up their documents, which, if they failed, could be criticized. Normally, and this was one of the wonderful parts of this new discovery, they took some people which, had in, which earned enough and could rely on their work so that they exerted their profession in a very um, tr well-trained and confidential way so that throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, people gained confidence in public notaries. The cases of forgery were very scarce, but still there was this possibility to uh, uh, to react on forgeries and this is meant as another means 
to assure public confidence in the craft of the public notaries. And this made something possible, which is at the core of our uh, European development, not only for trade, because if you want to make a contract, long-distance contract, you can't do it just orally. You have to fix it in a written way. And this is why uh, these documents um, became so important as the foundation of European trade. And secondly, um, if you want to set up a public administration, once again, it cannot just be done by words, but you have to fix what has been done, what has been enacted, what has been told everybody to do. And if you don't have this archive, you cannot have any public um, remembrance of anything which has been done. And this is the foundation of any state activity. And once again, public notaries are a very simple tool, which are the foundation of our modern state. And we have become accustomed to these a tradition to this tradition of documents and there's a wonderful example which I like to cite you all know Doctor Who and he has this wonderful passport being just blank showing it to everybody but nobody really looks at it but we all are incited to respect this kind of document None, whatever it contains and so um, from uh, the cradle to the end of our life, we are used to this kind of documents and we can find it in it. I really had not thought about the institutional link to the church before of um, notarizing. And secondly, I think this also really shows something meaningful about purpose of law, that it's not just to regulate people's behaviour and to command people. There is also a facilitating function that actually allows people to do what they want and to be able to rely uh, on something so that they can be more free. For example, this is a view that my college tutor, Dory Kimmel, very much takes in terms of contract. So this background is really interesting and insightful to hear about, actually. I would like to underline that it is a common European tradition here, of course, as I was referring to trade and state building. But moreover, our German system, which we have uh, uh, experienced here, is in uh, fact the French system, because we took over uh, the French law when our part here was French in the Napoleonic uh, Empire. Um, for this reason, most laws of Germany still today are marked by this tradition. We have one specialty that the possibility of courts to enact uh, such documents or to state on the, to make such documents um, was in Germany passed over to public notaries. There was always this duality and in some states it's still the courts which set up these documents, like in the Nordic tradition, also in um, the common law tradition, uh, whereas in the continent, this has 
during the 19th century when liberalism prevailed, they wanted to transfer this capacity to some new public functionaries, um, fonctionnaires publics, uh, in order to um, make the state um, more simple, to give this possibility uh, to sort of craftsmanship outside the state, but still uh, acting for the state. Okay, yes. So historically, it has been a European-wide development. And over time, it has specialised and differentiated in different countries. And there's an element of administrative law as well, how the state either regulates and controls or how the state facilitates or exactly. can be relied upon. Thanks very much. I, I think it has become evident already that you have a particular focus and interest in legal history, perhaps uh, in particular about the history of procedural law. Could I ask what it is about legal history and the history of procedural law, which really interests you? Well, we all are, particularly on the continent, sure that once we have established our rights, any court should accept them. But of course, English lawyers in particular know that courts are not very stable and that uh, it is another thing to realize your rights in front of the court. And for this reason, the law of procedure is very important. And particularly in the past, you did not have any subjective rights. This is a rather modern acceptation, or rather modern finding. But the most important thing was whether the court would give you a possibility to sue somebody and to get uh, a right of another. So the procedure was the very act of ensuring rights. Here, once again, the church has been very creative because our law is and still in the continent and to some extent also in uh, the UK. Uh, the church invented a very well-balanced set of rules, well-balanced between the chance to uh, sue others and to get your right and well with a certain respect also for uh, the accused party to have some guarantees um, and for this reason it was a very uh, modern law. Um, for the, uh, on the one side the church developed the possibility uh, of suing even without a plaintiff which is the very essence of any state which wants to act against uh, criminals or even the possibility to act in, in an administrative way, uh, to state on something, for example. And on the other way, they also had the feeling that there should be a minimum of guarantees for the accused party for example, at least somebody should be cited in order to, to cite it to the court to know that there's a, a litigation against him going on. And furthermore, uh, to have the right to be heard. 
and in the uh, later ages some other um, principles were uh, formed and for this reason uh, this is really quite at the core uh, of getting your law getting your rights uh, and, and the notion of what is right what is equal um, what is um, fair enough for people um, and um, all this is, is shaped with the aim of clarifying the notion of justice because in case the state acts in an unjust way it could be God who uh, acts against the state for the cause of this injustice uh, and claiming justice for himself. So any war, any uh, pan pandemic could be the sign of God's ire uh, and therefore the state himself has to um, establish justice in order to prevent such divine acts of um, terrible destruction. That's very thought-provoking. I hadn't thought so much before this about how law of procedure plays a role in fettering state behaviour and also how this is different for different areas of law. Like you said, state power is definitely fettered, but for example, there's perhaps a specialisation within criminal law. There are still protections for the defendant-like figure or individual, but there is the difference of there's no plaintiff here. Really thought-provoking. Now, a towering work which you have been editor of is the historical critical commentary on the German civil code. This is quite esteemed in the UK. Even the late Scottish Court of Sessions and UK House of Lords Judge Lord Roger commented that it is hard to imagine any other country where such a massive project of this particular kind could even be contemplated. It will be an indispensable tool for future comparative work. Could you please share with us why examining from a historical perspective, can be really informative on current law? Well, there is this old discussion of what really is the essence of law. If you have to have some enacted uh, legal rules or if law consists of practice. And in this case, uh, I will, uh, we can show that it's really always both. Because we have in Germany the tradition of the codes and yet these codes are um, apt not only to interpretation but really are formed also in practice by the interpretation and this is what we are showing it's not just the general clauses of uh, equity which we find in our German civil code but all paragraphs can be or have been changed tremendously in the past and I will give you an example it was quite normal for judges in the first a decade of the 20th century to use the new code in which they did not have been trained in a way according to their own conception. So they used it as the law had been used before the enactment of the, of the BGB, of the civil code, 
Um, and so they um, um, added uh, some notions of the 19th century, which the legislator wanted to have rid of. And so the code was changed in a backward style with effects, dramatic effects still to today. Um, because some um, problems which the legislator wanted to have dropped forever have re-emerged by this interpretation, much to the dismay of law students and the courts. After the 1920s, there were quite a number of new uh, problems, for example, the economic problems after the First World War and uh, the problems of inflation. And then there was the completely new question, do we have to uh, honor contracts as they were written, even if the indicated price is not what uh, anymore today, what it was worth a month ago, 10 days ago, yesterday. And do you honor the contract as it was written, or do we have to adjust it for equitable reason? And the new generation of judges, which had been formed by this law, they accepted that they had also the possibility to reshape the law. And so they added a sort of paragraph, which was not uh, written, uh, which was given in the legislation, that you have the opportunity, they have the possibility to adjust uh, contracts due to the new necessities. In the third decade, of course, it was the turn to fascism, and uh, many paragraphs were used uh, to install the new um, ideology in civil law. And this was more clear in the 1940s when contracts were considered void when they were contracted with Jews. So if it is automatically void because Jews do not have any more legal capacity, it is the first step to Holocaust because they cannot defend themselves anymore. And in the 50s, it was the uh, time when they were looking for good old morals in order to re-establish a notion of law. In the 60s, it was the new period of uh, liberalism. And you can see how in each decade the law changed dramat dramatically. And so you see that uh, the question, what is the norm, cannot be um, explained by referring to a norm or to some practice. It's, in our case at least, a constant interpretation which redefines the norm and, and uses it as a certain stable instrument, but for changing the law throughout the decades. That's super thought-provoking. I'm actually revising jurisprudence at the moment and the examples you explained initially about a historical examination can really show a lot about the chicken and egg problem. Actually very useful for me understanding jurisprudence better. Thank you. And the examples you've given really show how it's not just philosophical, not just theoretical. There are real 
impacts on daily life, on commerce and on society. For example, uh, do we take the uh, literal meaning of contracts always or should there be intervention or at least a more contextual interpretation of contracts? And uh, I never thought before about um, how private law can actually further uh, a very dark ideology, but I can definitely start to understand now that if you say, for example, that Jewish people don't have legal capacity, it's a very degrading legal concept that um, they uh, ha have no more human worth, and also perhaps they're seen as not having the intelligence to be able to intentionally and uh, fully form legal transactions anymore and the fact that there could not be any more legal reliance by Jewish people on the law. That's very thought-provoking. Would you be able to explain a little bit what shows the changes uh, after the Second World War when there was a re-emergence of liberalism? Well, first of all, it was the question how to re-establish any notion of law if the written law had not been able to prevent national socialism, which of course is a task too great to grant for any law. If there's a law, it cannot prevent a change of political uh, uh, system, um, of course. But they thought of the possibility to give some legal guarantees, for example, some ideas of natural law. But these ideas taken from the medieval, uh, from the Middle Ages, of course, was not able to give a new, uh, new sense of law, a new uh, guarantee of law. And so in the uh, 60s, um, they abandoned the idea to re-establish good old morals uh, and uh, tried to accept diversity of people, of accepting different political positions. And for this reason, you know, the society opened. It was also the time when Germany accepted influence from other countries, especially from the USA as the uh, new uh, cultural idea. Um, and for this reason, uh, many people liked to spend their holidays in Italy and uh, dress like Americans and hear English uh, songs, um, pop songs, and so becoming more and more international. And this was the time uh, also when German as the center of the continent uh, was so open to all other cultural influences. And this was also expressed by a new, more liberal uh, interpretation of the law. That's very informative, thank you. And before that, the long-lasting safe holds legislators tried to introduce in the 1950s, would those be things like, for example, in the basic law, the constitution, the evig clausel, the eternity clauses, and the try and uh, frame the constitution so that there are certain structures you can never abolish. Well, the Basic Code was a major influence in the 80s. 
due to a famous law professor of uh, Munich, uh, Canaris, who uh, tried to construct the unity of our legal system with a basic code on top and claiming to be the core for any interpretation. So whatever you wanted to decide in civil law should be done in the light of the basic code, which was a very um, fascinating idea, being so harmonious in its uh, legalized vision. But of course, it limits to a great extent the possibility for dogmatics of civil law, which to some extent uh, were abandoned by this approach. And it was um, used especially by our constitutional court, which changed to some extent uh, our civil law. Perhaps I may give you an example for that. We have categorical division in civil law between ownership and possession. And those who hire anything only have possession. But we have also the problem to give some further safeguards, some further guarantees for people who have hired a flat and could be sacked easily from their flat by the owners. And in this case, the Constitutional Court decided to draw on the disposition of uh, protecting ownership Article 14, to use it to protect also these people who had hired the flats. So they claimed that their possession should be treated as ownership for any civilian. Of course, this is complete nonsense, but it was a very practical approach from constitutional perspective. So we have a real conflict between these two aspects here. And uh, if you want to treat law in a dogmatical way, you are shocked. For pragmatical reasons, you can understand why they ac accepted this ruling. Quite an interesting idea when compared with the English law of rental contracts, of leases. In English law, under a lease, there is a property right uh, when you rent a flat but actually I wouldn't have expected that the German law goes even further in creating this exception to the dogma of differences between law of obligations and law of property and not just actually saying you have a property right but actually that you have ownership. Super interesting. You're interested in legal changes since the Protestant reformations your current research focuses on similarities and differences in the development of constitutional and international law as distinct Protestant denominations developed. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about some of your findings so far? Well, as you have seen, I'm very much interested in the influence of the church meaning that there is an influence of theology on the conception of justice, and this influences, of course, jurisprudence. And I think that the influence of the Protestant Reformation has not yet been fully recognized. 
having been accepted as a German thing because it's initiated in Wittenberg. Um, but of course, we can see the influence of um, Protestant Reformation also in other countries, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, also in the later history of the Anglican Church, and even in France and some other more Catholic countries, we can quite clearly discover the influence of Protestant Reformation, especially if we accept as an indication of Protestantism that it is not anymore the Pope who decides uh, about what is true, about what is just, not being accepted anymore as the supreme legislator or the supreme judge, but that it is a question of individual decision that we all are equal in the possibility to understand God's ideas on the world. Two major figures for the German tradition of the Protestant Reformation are, of course, Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. Whereas we venerate Martin Luther very much for his courage to stand against the emperor and the pope to define his personal view on the interpretation of the Bible. When he was called to the Diet of Worms and he was called uh, to abandon his idea in front of the empire, the young Charles V, uh, the representative of the pope and all the electors of the Holy Roman Empire. So the, all the major figures of politics surrounded this uh, little monk and they demanded him, abandon your ideas, and he did not. What a tremendous scene, what a tremendous courage. As a small detail, he dressed uh, when he got to Worms as a professor. So he had this black robe, uh, which is still used uh, to some extent in European universities. And so he not only used his um, individuality, but he also used the authority of having studied things. And this I find also very interesting, because if we want to um, be sure of something, we can study it until today. And the idea was that he did not claim to have the truth of anything, but he maintained that there should be an argument against his findings. So he just wanted to have somebody argument against his findings. So he was not defending his own verity, but demanding a scientific discussion, stand against the emperor and the pope to define his personal view on the interpretation of the Bible. Philip Melanchthon is the second teacher of the Protestant Reformation. In Germany, he is also called the teacher of Germany, Preceptor Germaniae, because he has been more influential than any other man in German history for our basic assumptions. Um, he has came to Wittenberg for teaching Greek, also his name, 
is taken from as a Greek translation from his original name, Schwarzerd, Black Earth, Melanchthon, and he later um, tried to use Aristotle as a tool for giving more philosophical depth to Protestant uh, theology. And in the 19, uh, 1520s, he gave a more explicit um, idea on the use of law, for example, to define discipline, while Luther had stated that it was always a divine grace which would lead men to redemption. It was the idea of Melanchthon that people should do something for themselves about it, and that discipline, though not leading directly to redemption, would be a good way to prepare oneself for it. And this, of course, was quite necessary for a new legal order in which Lutheran's ideas uh, would lead to uh, neglecting law or con con despising even, even law as being rather something superficial. Um, on the other hand, um, Melanchthon taught how to accept law as uh, a way of explaining how to behave in a civil society as accepting laws, for example, as school books for citizens. Melanchthon, for example, stated that the punishment of mankind after the fall of Adam is not that they are blind. This would be too simple. They have some rests of understanding so that they understand in how many cases they err, they don't understand what's happening. So we um, stumble and we are unable uh, to do what we intend and we notice it and this is our punishment, which means that we have to fail, we have to notice our errors, but nevertheless we have to do it because this is the only way how to come, uh, how to develop the next step. And for this reason it has the chance of becoming better. And we all are different and we all have strengths and we all have assets and we can exchange it so that the common market of people, the free common market, makes us, gives us the possibility to find what we need for our lives. Somebody has apples, others have peers, some are craftsmen and they change their goods and this is how society can survive. It doesn't mean that there's just one reformation because there are rather so many. It only starts in Wittenberg and Germany was much interested in getting a separation from Rome which was not at all interesting for the French church who already obtained in the 14th century a certain division from the, certain, from the um, Church of Rome. So in France they were much more interested in new forms of um, masses, new form of theology and this is what Calvin um, developed on the basis of Luther and Melanchthon. So the French 
Protestantism is different uh, from uh, German Protestantism. And it's also a question of time. Uh, Luther developed his first ideas in 1570, and already in 1519, his uh, thoughts were, were very different. Uh, and when in the 1520s, Luther and Melanchthon uh, tried to establish a certain Saxon state, their experiences led them to a new model, more state-like model of Protestantism, which was copied uh, first of all by uh, Denmark. Um, but it shows also that French Protestantism uh, was mostly shocked uh, by the first German experiences that the princes obtained more power against the emperor, whereas in France the prime uh, interest was to strengthen the French kingdom and the French king. So anything would be good that would strengthen the central power. And for this reason, many people were <clears throat> prepared to abandon their free conscience uh, in order to obey to a Catholic king as long as unity would prevail and um, peace would be uh, established in the kingdom. And uh, France was very important for Scotland, but this was already the second generation of Calvinists who were very much um, uh, working on notions of civil liberties, um, a state founding contract between the people and God. And this is why the notion of the covenant became so important in the Scottish tradition. Well, I'm very glad to have had the opportunity to talk to you. I assume that many people are quite amazed by the variety of topics. Professor Schmerkel, thank you so much for this eye-opening insight into German law, into legal philosophy and into legal history. It's really not every day that English law students get to hear from an established German law professor and researcher, not alone uh, about these particular topics. We say goodbye for now to Professor Schmerkel and goodbye from me, Chen. Professor Schmerkel, thanks so much for being our guest. And everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of our undergraduate law podcast. That was Professor Matthias Schmerkel of the University of Bonn discussing with Chen canon law, the Protestant reformations in Europe and the influence of historical events on the development of law. It perhaps needs to be considered whether historical analysis is always a good way to ascertain what the law is and what the law should be. For example, in light of the judgments of Justices Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett in Dobbs and Jackson, it's difficult to know where to draw the line with an argument such as the Founding Fathers never intended there to be a right in the Constitution to abortion, a constitutional right, because where do you draw the line there? Are racially equal civil rights next? Because the founding fathers were actually slave owners, at least some of them. And 
in both the US and European context, for example, in the context of EU law, it's difficult to say whether when examining from a purely historical perspective and informing the law so, whether, for example, EU law and also American constitutional law can ever be truly racially inclusive and anti-discriminatory. However, I think what Professor Schmerkel, through his detailed analysis, has shown is that historical analysis of the law does have a role to play and can be very useful in determining at least some very enlightening ideas and revelations about the law. It can really inform law and be a useful tool going forward too. Indeed, as shown from the legislation in Germany after the Holocaust, examining legal history can also be a way to learn from mistakes and for legislators to legislate in a way which creates a more equal and safe and democratic society. Dear listeners, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast. For more episodes and more information, please do go to the other episodes in our selection on Spotify, see about upcoming episodes and also look at our webpage on the Oxford Undergraduate Law Journal website. Thanks very much everyone. Goodbye for now.